Okay, we're in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and we're beginning <coughs> in chapter number 6 today. The book of Corinthians was written to address problems at the church in Corinth, and so far there's been two of them. Uh, the first problem was that they were arguing over their preachers. Paul was quite bothered by that. They were dividing up, arguing over who's a better preacher. And he said, you shouldn't be arguing over that. Uh, that's the last thing you ought to argue over. And he said, so that's problem number one. And he addressed it in several different ways. Told him you got to stop doing it. And then he went on beyond that to say, uh, You've you got to grow up. You're, you're not growing up spiritually. That's why you're doing it. Then we looked at another problem. Last week, uh, there was a fella in the church who was living with his stepmother. And uh, it was a problem with fornication uh, or sexual sin. And they were saying, this guy's okay. We like him. And... Paul said, he's got to go. We can't have that kind of behavior. He said, people out in the world don't do that. And you can't get it in church and embrace it. So he gave a pretty strong opinion about that. And now we come to chapter 6 where there's more problems that he's going to work on. And really when you get reading through this, and I think Paul is very clear in his mind that these people really don't know how to act. They were raised in a society that was, well, the best thing I can say is like ours. <laughs> do whatever you want, do it whenever you want to, and nobody dare tell me I'm wrong. And I'm going to do what I want to do, and it doesn't matter. And uh, uh, don't tell me I'm wrong. And so it's kind of like our society. And they, <coughs> we have at least some traditions. We got the Bible, the whole Bible. We got explanations of it, and we got a lot of things to help us that they didn't have. Right? They didn't have that. So they came out of a society that was pretty messed up. You've heard of Mount Vesuvius, all right, the, the place where the, the uh, uh, mountain blew up and covered the whole city of Pompeii. And uh, they dug it up, uh, and I, they watch, I watch them on TV, and they come on, oh, I'll show you what great things are in Pompeii. Everything, almost everything you see is pornography. It's pornography on the walls. Everything that they uncover, they uncover, oh, look at these paintings. I'm looking at the paintings, you kidding me? And, uh, and so it's, it's a tremendously corrupt society that these people come from. And so Paul is becoming convinced of one thing for sure, that the people in Corinth don't know how to act. They don't know how to act. They don't know what to do. And the things that we would kind of say, well, gee, you know, uh, maybe we wouldn't, <laughs> uh, but we should. 
uh, uh, they didn't know how to act. And Paul's convinced that they came out of this society and they brought with them all this stuff from the society and the th way that this world thinks. And that's a, certainly a problem that we got to deal with too, the way that the world thinks about uh, the way things should be done. And we can't embrace what the world says. Look at the idea of divorce. I mean, that's one of the strongest. Get, just get rid of them. Get rid of them. You ain't got to keep them. They're gone. And that's certainly not what we're about to find out as we get into Corinthians. So the whole concept of how we behave and what we do uh, is very twisted when you come to these Corinthian people. The same thing in our world. It's very, very strange and twisted. I hear things sometimes that I don't know what to say about it. I don't know what to say. I say, you kidding? It can't be true. And you know, this is what they're doing in the schools. Oh, Mac, you got to be kidding me! So uh, Paul's dealing with a group of people who came out of a very corrupt society where they could do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and so he's got to somehow get these people thinking right. And when I go back in my mind, Jesus comes on the scene at 33 years old, goes to John the Baptist, is baptized, and then he begins his ministry. And what does he preach continually from place to place? It says everywhere he went, he preached this from place to place. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I always kind of scratch my head about that. I say, well, what? Why didn't he preach repent like John the Baptist? And he kept saying, kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's something coming, he says. And you say to us, well, we're from the nation of the Jews. We're Jewish. He said, I don't care about that. It's the kingdom of heaven is what we're going to talk about. And other people would say, well, we're part of the Roman Empire. No, I'm talking about a whole new government, whole new way of operating, a way that we're going to function as part of this new kingdom that Jesus Christ is establishing. So he comes to establish this new kingdom, and he preaches it everywhere. He says, no, I'm going to try to make you not think like a Jew, not think like a Roman, but you think like a Christian. This is a new kingdom. We're going to function according to a whole new set of laws, a whole new set of rules, a whole new way that things go operate, whole new motivations. And it's all, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, uh, and these people were all saying, well, we're Jewish. And that's why they killed Jesus, you know. We're Jewish. We're Jewish. We're Jewish. And he said, no, I'm talking about a new way of thinking. And it's hard for people to think that there is a kingdom. And it's a spiritual kingdom. But there's a kingdom and there's a government. And that government functions the way it does and it changes the way when we become part of that kingdom. 
you've got to change the way we think. And so he's about to go in to that and trying to describe the people. There's a difference here, and we want you to get it right. And so the third problem is in chapter 6. Now we begin verse 1. Dare any of you. How dare you. I love Paul. You know, he says, yeah, here's what you did. How dare you do that. He stops right away. Are you kidding? How dare you do it? Well, whatever's coming, they're probably, here's what it is. Having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. All right, so people in the church at Corinth had some sort of an issue, some sort of a problem. We don't know what it is, but whatever the issue was, he says, uh, you took it to a local court. You went to court. And <clears throat> what he's saying is there's two Christians in your church, and you sued. One of them sued the other one, or they sued each other, or whatever it was. Who knows? Somebody owed somebody money. We don't know what it was. He doesn't say that. But he's, how dare you take a Christian to court? What's wrong with you? Who do you think you are that that world, that government out there, you're going to go before that government and try to get your problems solved? He said, how dare you do that? What is wrong with you? Now he's going to give a series of reasons why that should never happen. All right? So it's not just one reason, one after the other, after the other, after the other. So here we go. Verse 2, uh, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? All right, so he says, you should have taken your issue to church. If you had an issue between two of you, some sort of problem came up, you should have went to church and said, hey, look, we got this issue we need to fix. He said, you'd have been so much better off. Don't go out to the world and say, we're fighting with each other. Solve our problem. What is wrong with you? Here's one of the reasons why. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? There's a day coming, the Bible tells us, when Jesus is going to come and when he returns, he's going to set up his own kingdom. Uh, and that's when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. What the Bible describes. Or in other words, Jesus is coming back. He's going to take over. He's going to rule for a thousand years. He's going to bring peace in the whole world. Well, we've been scratching our heads for 6,000 years trying to figure out how to do it. Never figured it out. He's going to come and establish peace. He's going to be called the Prince of Peace because he will, he said, I will teach you how to beat your weapons into plowshares. I'll teach you how to farm. And teach you, try to make you useful and not the way you've been. And so it's a tremendous change coming as his government takes over the world. And he says, now what's going to happen, it'll be called a judgment day. It's a day when God sits in judgment over the world and over all the people that have ever been. And he says, the saints or the Christians are going to join with Jesus in that. Now that baffles me beyond belief. I can't even imagine it. 
but what's going to happen, and this is what he's saying here, and it says it other places, is that uh, when in the judgment, Jesus will say, hey, uh, Amy, your turn. You judge this person. I, I'm going to hide behind the person so he don't ask me. Because I'm thinking to myself, I'm sure he's expecting us to judge like he does. And he's going to ask us to, all right, have you learned anything? Well, you were down there on earth. You were serving me. Did you learn? Did you learn how to judge people? Did you learn how to love people? Did you learn how to treat people? Step up. There's this person. I want to hear your judgment on the case. That scared, I told you, that scared me to death. Uh, (laughs) But he said, that's what's going to happen. And that's the nature of government under Jesus. All right. He says he's going to rule the world with a rod of iron. It's going to be his way. He's going to expect us to be able to pass judgment on other humans. It goes beyond that. And the world shall be judged by you if you unworthy to judge the smallest matter. Know ye not that we shall judge angels. (laughs) No, your mind is blown by that. He says, I'm going to call you in as my kingdom. You've been part of my kingdom, right? I'm going to call you in and... uh, in the judgment day, everybody gets judged. And when I'm going to call an angel up and say, All right, what's your opinion about him? Uh, I, don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Uh, and so <clears throat> that's what's coming. He expects us to understand how the kingdom works. And he's going to put us to the test, to judge. And he says, you're going to be able to do it through his help and guidance, you'll know what to do. And so he says, if you're going to judge next to the judge of all the earth, and you're even going to pass judgment on angels, couldn't you figure this little thing out that you got? What's the matter with you? How dare you go to an outside court? What is wrong with you? You ought to have been able to figure it out. All right, verse 3 again. Know ye not we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life. All right, so if we're going to actually judge uh, creatures from another dimension, he says, I expect you to understand life as it's going on in front of you. And as it unfolds before you, I expect you to do that. Verse 4, if you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. He says, you got some argument over money or business or whatever it is, whatever your problem is that you've taken to court. He says, uh, Here's probably a way to do it. He's like, find the least qualified person in church. Have them do it. That's a very sarcastic comment Paul's making. He says, it's so stupid the kind of things you're taking out and having a court, outside court, sit on them. 
He said, why? We're not qualified to do this. He said, the kind of case that you took to court, you don't need anybody with many brains. As a matter of fact, you can pick almost anybody from the church and say, give us your opinion. It'll be better than the courts. Is that true in this world or not? You bet your life is true. You bet your life is true. The courts are not very, not very good. So he's saying to them, this problem that you took outside the church to get fixed should have been fixed inside the church. Anybody ought to be able to solve that kind of problem. Verse 5, I speak to your shame. Shame on you. First he says, how dare you? And now he says, shame on you. Why didn't you do that the right way? So don't go outside to that kingdom, to that government out there that's so confused, so messed up. I expect you to fix it in the kingdom inside. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you? No, not one that be able to judge between his brothers? Certainly there's somebody there that can help solve this problem. And so that's a pretty strong comment that he makes. And he's very serious about the government out there and the government in here. The government out there, he says, they don't want to hear your stuff. They shouldn't be listening to it. You ought to be able to take care of it yourself. All right, verse 6. Brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. First of all, the whole problem is that you ever considered even making the issue. Then better, he says what? Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? So somebody in church loan money, never paid it back, or whatever it was, a business deal, some kind of thing happened. And he says, you should have just shut your mouth, take the loss, and, and let it go. That's what you should have done. You should have just let it go. Take the wrong, all right? Uh, verse 8, nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that's your brother. You're going against Christians, and you're defrauding them. And he said, that can't be. Verse 9, know ye not that the unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He's going to try to do, describe now the difference between the kingdoms. Because they haven't got it. They don't consider the church to be a kingdom. What did Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. Right? There's a new way to do things, a new government coming into the world. My government is the way we operate. All right? and how do we operate? Turn the other cheek, Jesus said. He said, take the wrong, take the hit, let it go. All right? But you didn't do that. You've got to go. So he's going to try to describe there's an outside government that you came from. I expected you to use the government of the church. Here's the outside government, verse 9. Know ye not that unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
right? The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, he's saying to you that there's people out there who are sitting in the seat of a judge, sitting in the seat of government, and I mean, look at, look at our governor today. You know, she said, I'm going to guarantee that your reproductive rights are held up. What has that got anything to do with reproductive rights? Making sure that we can kill the baby? You got to be kidding me. All right. Now that's the kingdom out there that's operating. Here's what he says. Know ye not, verse 9, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They are not a part of this kingdom. Be not deceived. Don't be fooled. Now he's going to give a list of people who are not part of the kingdom of God. And if we were to go back to the Ten Commandments, and that's over in Exodus chapter 20. We look at Exodus chapter 20. We have here a list of things that God has said. And there are Ten Commandments. And, and uh, these Ten Commandments shall have no other gods before me, and so on. He's going to go through the list. And he's going to mention these things that people do that are on this list. All right, so it's not like this is a brand new thing. God set up a moral structure with the Ten Commandments and said, these are wrong. Don't do them. Way, 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 way back in the beginning. He had this moral structure and he defined what was wrong. Now he says, here's what's out there in the world. Be not deceived, now back here in 1 Corinthians. Neither fornicators nor idolaters or people who worship other gods. And if we look in Exodus 20, if you keep flipping back and forth with me, verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image. Right? You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now, we say in our day, what's that got to do with it? Well, back in this day, they had idols everywhere. I mean, places like Corinth and like that sold idols to make money. And one of the big to-dos in the book of Acts is these people were uh, silversmiths. And they made little idols and sell them down the marketplace. And Paul comes along preaching and says, well, they're not going to buy our idols. They start believing in a God you can't even see. So we got to get rid of Paul. And so it turns into a full-blown riot. Says for two hours they're screaming, "Great is Artemis, God of the Ephesians!" And it's crazy. Uh, and so he says, "The people that worship idols—they're not part of this kingdom." Now the first one on the list he mentions is fornicators or people of sexual sin. And if we look down. <coughs> Uh, verse 14 in Exodus 20, thou shalt not commit adultery, sexual sin. And he's going to mention a whole list of things here. The fornicators, he mentions adulterers. Fornicator is sexual sin, any kind of sin outside the marriage bond. Adulterers are people who break the marriage bond and go outside of it and have uh, sexual encounter, right? So they're married people, commit adultery, they cheat on their 
husbands or wives. He says, fornication, any kind of sexual sin. Effeminate is in the list. That's homosexual. All right, that's on the list. That's what it means to be effeminate here. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind or perverts of all types. All right, because these people are not in the kingdom. If they're out there doing those things, they are not part of the kingdom. All right, let's go on. Verse 10, nor thieves. All right, and it says, verse 15 in Exodus 20, thou shalt not steal. All right, you got people stealing things that don't belong to them. Those people are not going to go into the kingdom. Nor covetousness. And, and, and he says down here, verse 17 in Exodus, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and so on and so forth. All right? So covetousness, people who want something that's not theirs, and take it, and go take it. Nor drunkards, revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God and uh, those are the people who covet, take what's not theirs, and they're abusive to other people. So he says, there's a kingdom out there. The laws have already been stated. God says, this is the moral law. You've got to abide by these laws. And he said, those people that you're going to to get your little issue solved are part of that kingdom out there. They are not part of this kingdom. And so... Don't go out there. And then he throws this in, just in case they were getting a little proud. <laughs> Verse 11, such were some of you. <laughs> you used to be an idolater. You used to be an adulterer. You used to be a thief. You used to be a fornicator. You used to be all those things. But you are washed, you are sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Right, so he said, you used to be in that kingdom. And now God has forgiven you, brought you over into this kingdom, into his kingdom, and he's made it so you can be here. He justified you, or he made it just as if you never sinned. And so he's brought you into the kingdom. So he's trying to get in their minds the difference. That the world out there don't bring the stuff in with you. You're part of a whole new system now. You work on a different form. have a different government. And I think this is true in society in general. Is that society does a tremendous uh, influence over some Christians. What's the world doing? What do they do? They don't care what they do. We're not going to do it. Say, well, we're going to have uh, gay pride day. We're going to be proud. No, we're not going to be proud. We're not going to be proud at all. There's nothing to be proud of. It's part of the kingdom out there that is against God, that is in full rebellion. And he said, you make sure you get the difference. And so when you used to be in that world, and now you come into this world, which is the kingdom of God, all right, now you've got to change the way you think. Verse 12 sets up one of the great principles of 1 Corinthians. There are three chapters in 1 Corinthians. We're doing them in order. But chapter 6 and chapter 8 
in chapter 10 uh, are all hold principles. Principles for behavior. We're going to look at chapter 6 tonight, and we'll get to chapter 8 and 10. Well, you mark them in your Bible when we get to them. Put a little note there. This is a 6, 8, 10 principle. 6, we're about to look at. When we get chapter 8, it'll be another one. Here's how you control your behavior. And then we get chapter 10, there'll be three of them. And if you put those three together, uh, you got a pretty good concept of the way you're supposed to behave and not the way the world behaves. You're going to bring, uh, not bring that into us. So here's how we're going to think. And this is the sixth part of the 6-8-10 principle. We'll go over all of them as we come to them in the text. A lot of times I have uh, given them all at once, which is useful. But we'll get to them in the text just because that's what we're working through. Here we go, the first principle of behavior, verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. <coughs> all right, he says, so if you're a Christian, you say, well, I have freedom. I have freedom as a Christian, and I can make choices, all right? And so I have... Uh, a right to do things. He says, so here's going to be the way you're going to judge him. You're going to look at it and say, should I do that? Should I do that? Well, here, should you or not? All things are lawful to me. Well, you could choose to do that, but all things are not expedient. Or I would say they are not wise. Some things are just not wise to do. And you're going to look at it and you're going to say, is that a wise thing to do? Well, what's the world doing? I'm pretty sure it's not wise. All right. So if you see that they're doing out there, that's not wise. That's not wise. So one of the controls over your behavior is, uh, can I do this? Well, is it wise? No. It continues, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. All right? So if it's not wise, I'm not going to do it. Uh, if it will control me, if it will control my behavior and the way I think. And you think of addiction. Say, is it wrong to take a drink of wine? It's not wrong. I mean, Maybe it is for you. Or maybe it is for you. Uh, is it going to control you? If it's going to control you, then it's wrong. I see the, the type of, he's talking about like an addiction. Well, is it wrong to, you know, smoke cigarettes? Well, you've got to decide. He says, verse 13, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. God shall destroy both it and them. He says some things just, you know, you think, well, I can eat whatever I want, and I, so I'm made to eat. Well, maybe you're not, all right? <laughs> and God's not going to consider those things important, all right? But now he gets to the point of the issue, which is going to be right down to business. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord 
for the body. Now he's asking, getting down to business with the people at Corinth. He says, so I'm going to say, here's something you want to do. I want to have sexual freedom to do whatever I want to do. Is that wise? <laughs> Is it controlling you? Well, it can be. It can be very addicting and very controlling. It can absolutely consume people, he says. And he says, so that's going to be out. And remember, you have a body. Such as it is, okay? <laughs> we got these bodies, all right? And he said, the body was made for the Lord. Who made your body? God did. God said, I'm going to give that guy red hair. So he did. All right? I'm the first red-haired male anybody can remember in all the generations they have. He said, whoopee. All right? Well, just God said, I'm going to make you that. I'm going to make you what you are. You're what you are. He made your body. All right? And he created us. And what does it say? He has created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. So if I'm created by God, my body is created by God, it's created for his pleasure, not for fornication, not for sexual sin. And that's not what it's been created for. Verse 14, God has both raised up the Lord, will also raise up us by his own power. Or in other words, Jesus came to earth, had a body, a human body. And what happened? They killed him. And he died. And what did God do? He said, I'm not through with that body. He said, we're going to raise it up and make it something very special. And Jesus was called the first fruits of the resurrection, or he's the first one that came out of the grave with a brand new kind of body. And we're going to look at it and say, are we going to get that? Yeah, we're going to get that. And I'm going to walk through walls like he did when I get a chance. I can't now. But he's going to change this thing here into something really wonderful. And it's going to live forever. Now we got a hard time getting through to 75 and 80, right? And scrape our lawn. We get to 90. We think, oh man, I got all this way. And, and I get, okay, all right. This new body can live forever. I can't figure out what that's going to be like, but wow. And he says, this is what, I'm going to take your body and transform it. So what do you want to do by going off and committing sexual sin? God made your body. He intends to remake it into something spectacular. So let's get that in our head, he said, before you do something with your body that you shouldn't. Verse 15, know ye not that your bodies are the member of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. All right, so when we become Christians, and we ask God to be in our hearts and forgive us, and make us one of his followers, all right? When that happens, he says, you become part of a group, the church, and we call it the members of Christ. 
He calls us three things. What did he call us? Scholars, a building. And they all began with B. The bride. The bride. There you go. And the other one was the body. The bride of Christ showed love of Christ. The building showed the labor of Christ. The body showed the life of Christ. Three B's and three L's. Got it? Forever? I hope so. All right. So he says, you're part of this body like a bride. You're married to Christ. Right? Part, that's how he views us, like his bride. And he says, <coughs> verse 15 again, Know ye not your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, the body that belongs to Christ, and make them members of a harlot? Or shall I go and have a sexual experience with a prostitute? God forbid, he said. What? 16, what? Know ye not that he is joined to a harlot is one body, for two he saith shall be one flesh. All right, so back in Genesis chapter number two, wait in the very beginning of the whole thing, Genesis chapter number two. We get a definition here. Of marriage is a definition of marriage. It's given right in the beginning, so it'll be clear forever and ever. All right. <coughs> Let's look at verse 21. The Lord God called a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. All right, so he says marriage is going to be a joining of a man and a woman together. And they're going to have a sexual encounter because that's what God planned. And so those two people become as one flesh. All right, people say to me sometimes, this divorce hurts. Yeah, you just ripped your arm off. You get it? You're one flesh. Two people join together, and he says, in that joining together, they become one. And so divorce is like ripping your arm off. It's your own body you're tearing apart. All right? And so what he's saying here is you join with a harlot, you become one with a harlot. You're one with Christ. Don't be doing that. He said, whatever you do, don't be doing that. Verse 17, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Right, so we be joined to God, same way we become one with him. Remember what Jesus prayed? John chapter 17, high priestly prayer. We did it here not long ago. What did he say? That we might be one, that they might be one, even as we are one, that we all will be one. 
So he says, you're going to take because you think you came from a society where sexual encounters are no big thing. Do whatever you want. Have all you want. It's okay. You can do it. That's the society they came from. It was set up for that. Like I said, in Pompeii, every single painting on the wall was prostitution. And that's the way they, that society was living. He says, you can't bring that in here. You can't come in. You've got to leave that out. All right, verse 18. Flee fornication. Flee sexual sin. He's trying to get them to come to understand that what they used to do and what the world does, we can't do. And he's using this example. There's other examples. But uh, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. All right, so he said, if you steal something, you're sinning against the person you stole it from. If you covet something, you're coveting against that person. But he said, when you do a sexual sin, he says, you're sinning against your own body. This body that God made for you and promises to remake in a wonderful new experience, he says, I'm going to keep that body and your identity will flow into that new body. He said, that body is mine. We're joined together with it. And if you uh, break off and join sexually with somebody else, he says, you're sinning against your own body. Or he says, he said, and that's the only way you can sin against your body. Let's go on. He's got more arguments. Verse 19. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? So when we are saved, when we ask Jesus to forgive us, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes in to us. And we say, well, how does he do that? I don't know how he does it. He just comes. He promised to come. And Jesus said, the one who I send to you will be in you. And so the Holy Spirit comes into us and lives in us. So we're like a temple. We're a house for God to live in. He said, so uh, you are God's house. And what you do with God's house is you're responsible. You're responsible. You are not your own. Verse 20, you are bought with a price. Not only are you God's house where the spirit comes, but he said that body's been paid for. He paid a price. What was the price? The blood of Jesus. Death of Christ. He bought us, redeemed us. And so not only does he use it, the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, but he paid for it. He owns it. All right. And so therefore he says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. All right. You've been bought with a price, paid for. So he's got a lot of arguments against what they're thinking. And he's trying to get them to change the way they think and the way they behave. Now, we're going to start in chapter 7. We won't get it done. 
But uh, here, uh, was a question. So, the book of Corinthians was written by Paul to answer their questions. Here's the first one that he's going to get to in chapter 7 that they actually asked. They didn't ask, is it right for us to argue over Paul and Apollos? They didn't ask that. He just answered that. <laughs> and they didn't ask, is it right for uh, us to have this fornicator in the midst? No, they, he just said, I heard that. I heard about that. Way over where I am, I already heard about that. And he said, I also heard that you're suing each other in court. I also heard that. He says, so now, he says, I'm going to answer one of the questions that you asked. Chapter 7. We'll begin. We won't get too far, but we'll get started. Now, concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. Here's one of the questions that you asked. Is it good for a man not to touch a woman? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, every woman have her own husband. All right, so they're asking about marriage. And he says, here's kind of a rule. Don't touch women. Does that mean don't hug them or don't? No, that's not what it means. What it means is uh, don't. Uh, have what he's been talking about, fornication. You're not going to touch a woman. That's not what we do. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, every woman have her own husband. So he said, marriage was given to you because you have in you uh, the desire for another person of the opposite sex. So God knew that. He created that in us. And he said, now I'm going to help you uh, by creating marriage. The two of you will become one. And so he says, if you, to avoid the call from the world, come on out here and let's have a sexual fling. All right, to avoid that call, let every man have his own wife, every woman have her own husband. That's the way God planned it. God planned that marriage would take care of the need that we have. Let the husband, three, render to the wife due benevolence, and likewise the wife to the husband. All right, so, so I expect a husband and wife to enjoy each other and to enjoy each other in a sexual way. The wife had not the power over her own body, but the husband. Likewise, also the husband had not power over his own body, but the wife. In other words, you both are uh, responsible to participate in this relationship and to have that as the thing that satisfies what you have, that desire in your heart. He said, and so you can't, one of you can't shut it off and say, huh, not, not tonight. You can't do that. All right. I mean, there's certainly a reasonableness in that that comes along, and then we're not talking about being crazy all the time, but we can't just say, no, you know, you can't touch me anymore. That's not the way it is. He says, here, you have to. You know, give to each other. That's 
part of what's happening. Verse 5, defraud ye not uh, one the other, except it be with consent for a time. He said, or in other words, don't refuse to have a sexual relationship with your husband or your wife unless you consent, you agree to it, that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again, then that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Or in other words, he said, if you want to say, we're not going to have relations tonight, we're going to pray. Somebody in our family's in trouble. Somebody we know has a real need, so we're going to pray tonight. Good, do that. Do that. That's a good use, he said. <laughs> you can skip it that night for that, all right? But Satan tempt you not, but he said, not for long. Because we're going to have that need, and that need is to be fulfilled. Verse 6, I speak this by permission and not of commandment. Well, people love that. They say, oh, if it's not a command, we can do it anyway. No. <laughs> it's, it's inspired text. Paul is writing it under the inspiration of God. And he says, look, he said, I'm trying to give you information about marriage. And this is how they should work. Your marriage should work this way. All right, he said, and I'm not making fast rules because I understand there's a lot of things that come in to play, you know. I mean, uh, we get separated because of business. We get separated for various reasons, all right. If you're separated just because you're ornery, then uh, it's out. That doesn't work, all right. That's not what it's for. So he's saying, I understand there's a lot of in, in that relationship, there's give and take. But in a general sense, this is how it should work. This is how it's supposed to work. Verse 7, for I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this matter, another after that. Now what he's saying, he says, personally, I recommend you don't get married. Because I'm doing real well not being married. <laughs> And he'll explain that more. What he's saying is not that he hates women. What he's saying is he wants to give himself entirely to God. And he understands that if he was married, he'd be responsible to take care of his wife and do what he had to do. And he says, so I'm glad that I'm not married, and I recommend it. I wish that people were like me who give their whole life to God. Now that, of course, even, it's funny, uh, even something like that, you know, the Catholic priests. So we give our lives to the church. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're like Paul. I don't think they're like Paul at all. Uh, you know what goes on behind closed doors in so many places, okay? And Paul would certainly would never embrace that. But even these things that Paul said, you understand there's people who misinterpret. But every man has his proper gift of God, one after this, another after that. So uh, for some people, God made you the way you are, expect you to get married and be happy and enjoy the relationship. So that's what I say. Verse 8, I say therefore to unmarried and widows, it's good for them if they abide even as I, if you can do that. 
If you can stay that way, okay. If you cannot contain, let them marry. If it's better them to marry than to burn. All right. Or in other words, if you are constantly uh, desirous of some sort of that kind of relationship, then get married. All right. Don't just sit around burning up. That's what the Catholic priest did. Sat around burning up. All right went after little boys or whatever else they went after. And uh, that's, of course, not what you're supposed to do. He said, don't be afraid of marriage. It's made to satisfy your heart. That's why it's there, all right? Verse 10, and to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let, the wife, let not the wife depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Let not the husband put away his wife. What he's saying is, I'm going to tell you, don't get divorced. Don't do it. He says, don't do it. I just told you right there. And he's coming out and telling us in the scripture, don't do it. And he says, verse 11, but if she depart, all right, if it happens, then don't get remarried, what he says. And that's a very difficult question to deal with, all right? I understand what he says, but basically the rule he's trying to come up with is this, don't get divorced. Find a way not to. Now, nobody knows better than I do that that happens and it's lots of times there's one party refuses to cooperate. I've wrote letters to people. I beg people, please come and talk to me. Let me help you. Let me do anything I can. No, no, don't want it. And I understand that people are in that position where they just, you can't fix it. It won't be fixed. And so that's the way it is. And out there in the world, they throw out marriages like it's nothing. No big deal. Just get rid of them. And he's telling us, let's be different. We're part of the kingdom of God. Part of the body of Christ. Let's be different. And that's why we give a round of applause if you're married over 40 years. Because as wonderful as I can make it sound, it's a task. It's a job, right? We've got to work at it. I got to work at it. When somebody says, I've been married 40 years, 15, some of us, 60, 70, some of us. That's fantastic. I mean, they worked hard and accomplished a lot to do it. So there's the question that they asked. Tell us about marriage. He gave them both barrels. <laughs> there you go. You got it now. You should know enough about it. So it's a good thing. God meant it for good. And uh, I'm going to stop there, and we'll go on with the rest of it afterwards. All right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.